Hey, I'm Joseph. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I'm Joseph. And I'm Steve. We're exploring a simple question. Why do people do what they do? Welcome to Working Title. What do you do? Uh, Okay, yeah, I answer that. Depending on the hour, that can be answered in a few different ways. And that's not to say I'm some sort of jack of all trades, but to be a sort of an editor or journalist in, in 2019, you kind of have to play multiple roles. Uh, I am an arts journalist and critic. Uh, I'm also a digital director of a group of magazines around North Carolina. Um, but, you know, that could also... And I hate the Twitter, like, I'm a storyteller, like, boiling it down. Because that's not what I do either. Because uh, that also is, like, yeah, that's silly. Um, I, yeah, I write about art part of the day. I help other people with their writing about lots of subjects for the magazines uh, owned by our mothership in Augusta, Morris Communications. Um, but I also do some national art writing as well. So it's sort of a mix. My day-to-day is is basically shepherding all of the Charlotte Parent, Carolina Parent, Charlotte Magazine, all of their digital um, output, whether it's social media or the digital versions of their issues, their websites, the newsletters, shepherding that and sort of um, making it as good as possible. Um, So that means constant contact with a lot of people (laughs) and trying to figure out how to best represent the story they're trying to tell. Um, And that can look like curating photos for those things, you know, just trying to make it look and feel and read as, as well as possible. So would you say that the, the world that you are in though, no matter which form it takes is the Charlotte art world? No, I mean, it's weird. I, you know, cause I also have the other foot in the national stuff. And so my week to week, basically during the off hours, during outside of the nine to five, I have this other life as an, a national arts journalist where I'm writing stories about artists that are doing things across the world. And so um, a lot of that writing is done on the weekend. A lot of it's done at night. And so it's always feels like I'm sort of walking in those two, those two paths at the sort of at the same time, almost like parallel paths side by side. Um, but they feed into each other. Um, I end up writing about North Carolina artists sometimes nationally. Um, and, you know, it, or something that I've written about nationally comes to Charlotte. I sort of had that context already. And locally writing about art, it's become a lot more about finding voices that are different than my own lately. A little bit more about being an editor than being a writer locally. Um, I feel like it's time for that voice to be a little bit more diverse. And um, if it ha- you know, if it's going to be. Charlotte magazine that has sort of multiple voices trying to do that instead of a media scene that isn't making those investments altogether, then that's what's going to have to be. Not to say that there isn't good work being done on local arts elsewhere, but um, it's obviously not as active as it was maybe 10 years ago when there were more blogs, there were more arts publications, art centric publications, that kind of thing. Is there, is there part of it that feels, is there one side of those two things either Charlotte or national that feels like more of um, the thing that you enjoy doing the most or is it? Um, No, I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of nice. I mean, it's sort of the same thing with the, the, you know, when I came on staff at Charlotte magazine, 
Um, and they were talking about, you know, you do writing, you do this, you have this arts writing career and then you have this digital production career, digital editing career, Mm -hmm. which one do you like more? And I said, I I really, I think answering that question would limit what I can offer. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think when I was in journalism school, um, there was a guy named Kevin Seitz who worked for Yahoo and he was sort of the, the, the big backpack journalist. He could learn how to, he did his own photography, his own video editing, his own whatever, audio editing um, and writing. And he was a great writer and he could do all these things. And so I was taught by that generation of instructors who believe that that was what you're, you're going to have to become a generalist in some ways. You're going right. to have to figure out how to do a lot of things to be useful to the newsroom because you have a lot, you know, um, it's not that newsrooms are getting any bigger. They're getting a lot smaller. Sure. So you have to kind of play multiple, have those multiple hats. And some people I know are fantastic writers and they can make a career off of just doing long form journalism. More right. power to them. But for mm-hmm. me, um, my having those multiple, it's, I, I'm best when I have multiple things, um, multiple plates spinning at the same time uh, in different areas. Mm-hmm. Best in what way? Like it's because it's, you enjoy multiple expressions of things that you think that you're good at or just because it helps um, create a, a platform for you to express those gifts? Um, I think it's just I have always been, uh, you know, I was, the, my entry point in the art was was trying a lot of things and not being incredibly great at any of them. I was in bad bands. I was an okay actor when I was in high school theater. I was a f- okay fine artist. So what happens is I got conversational in those languages and um, and was able to sort of write about them on a more intimate level because I understood at least what it took to create, you know, how annoying pastel is. You know, it's this messy, awful process um, if you're not good at it like I was. Um, and so I think that carries over into everything. I sort of have a natural interest or... Um, I take maybe, and maybe it's white guy confidence or something, but I take a little bit of ownership over something when I try to learn about it in a way that I'm like, I think I can do that. Or I think I can learn enough about that to be talk about it at a party. Right. Um, and so I think to me, it's sort of learning about people and what they do and having empathy, empathy through action, through trying to physically try to inhabit what they're doing is, is something that has led me to, have three or four things I'm actually decent at, decent enough to do professionally. Um, and so, yeah. And so I think that's sort of where that curiosity stems from, that early interest in art that became uh, an interest in telling art story and then telling art story in different ways and now what it is now. Yeah, so specialization wasn't really something that intrigued you, I guess. I mean, yeah. I mean, I have, I think you all... <laughs> can relate because you have multi-pronged interests as well, but it's, it's this thing of, you know, there are those moments where I wake up in the middle and I'm like, I, I guess I'm going to be a stand-up comic now. Oh yeah. <laughs> or, uh, you know, and, and it's like, no. And I tried stand-up and I bombed terribly. Um, and the reason I knew it wasn't for me was because I didn't stand up the next day and say, I should go back and do that again. I, oh yeah. That's like the story of a comic. It's like, I bombed for the first two years. I'm like, I can't ever do that again. Um, <laughs> and so, but I had to try and just doing it was I've only <laughs> I, I've had I've always had enough ambition to fail and whether or not I decide to keep going is different depending on what you're talking about. Um, writing, I uh, keep failing. I've, it's been a continuous process of failing or um, podcasting or so those are th- it's just like what sticks. 
and then you end up with this weird Swiss Army knife. Really, it'd be like a Swiss Army knife with like a spoon and a, <laughs> right. tur- a turkey baster over here. <laughs> And then a VHS copy of Fletch over here. Like, it makes no sense, this <laughs> stuff together. So why? So what was the difference between, you know, failing at writing and failing at stand-up? Um, yeah. Um, so why did you continue to write? Yeah, well, I think it, it had that thing where I was like, wait, I think I got it this time. Or I think, no, I, I see what I did wrong. Um, I was, you know, when you're confronted with, you know, I think especially the the more you get into your 30s, I'm 30s, and I know people who are in 40s and 50s will roll their eyes at this, but the more I get into my 30s, the more my shortcomings are just like, it's quicker and quicker, me seeing what I'm good and bad at. And so there was just enough of a carrot in the writing to be like, okay, but you you know, you know, had the right quote, so you, you're searching, there was searching for something. Like I was closer to something passable the, the first few times enough to keep going. And I think, um, it doesn't hurt that when you fail at writing, you're not being heckled well, that's in the it. moment. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, unless, I mean, if you look at a comment section of <laughs> our Facebook posts, I mean, you do get heckled some. Were you heckled at the open mic? Uh, oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> what was it? Um, oh God, I have to relive this here. Uh, didn't, didn't you say I, I did a couple. Okay. So I did a couple. The first time I did a little bit of a standup, it was a, a dorm thing and it was my friend. So, unfair oh, uh, yeah. because it's like these people know me they didn't want to see me you know <laughs> cry <laughs> so i'm going back to their room after this right so it's like i don't want this guy to be bummed out in my room for the rest of the night so i'm going to give him a couple laughs but super hard laugh right away like that yeah. wasn't funny at all <laughs> exactly um yeah and, and so i my friend's band was playing and he knew i was doing i had a video i'd play yeah i'm not going to say the name of the, the video series on here because i don't want people to look it up um but uh, and don't punch in later with it. Or I'll stop talking to you forever. Um, I was I did a video series. that was a comedy series, and that whole the the hook of that whole thing was I was learning how to be a stand up. But the idea was it was never really going to be me doing stand up. One of my friends had a band. He said, "Hey, I want you to do like five minutes before." I think he said fifteen minutes, which is no no shot. You know, fifteen minutes. You know, it's yeah. It, um, it's like when you do a speech and you like you're like yeah I could do an hour and you do like three minutes right. you're like well any questions <laughs> uh, and so I had it was the thinnest set possible and so my friend's band first of all going before band awesome <laughs> great choice not um, good and they were a, a highly anticipated band <laughs> stupid <laughs> again get out of here but there was a guy that just was on the side of the stage I remember he had these stupid racing stripes down his long sleeves and he was already drunk. And he just kept on saying, hey, seriously, get off. Get off. And he was, there was a, there was a stage, just to let a little bit know. He wasn't in the audience. There was a little hole, you know, the little door to get onto the stage. And he was standing in that telling oh. you that. So it was like, in stereo, you suck. And it's not even like a, it's not even him jeering at you. It's just like, honest to God, get off the stage. Yeah, like this, you, you were no, ruining my life. Yeah. No bit, get off the stage. And, um, and yeah, and so, um, I mean, I, I, and I got a couple, I got enough laughs in there to not make it the worst night of my entire life, but it was, it was very much a like, no, you're not built for this. Um, but you did another one. Uh, no, that was the last that was one. The, I last. Did two. the first one where I unfairly got the dorm laughs, gotcha. and then the second one where it was, um, a rock club <laughs> in Morgantown, West Virginia. And they rightfully made me feel like an idiot. Um, and it was so, it was so funny because Sarah and I, for that my, my wife at the time we were dating and she was so supportive, but we were just at a, 
event the other day. Um, it was a Charlotte Magazine event. We were talking to somebody. I'm like, yeah, I tried stand up once and it was terrible. And Sarah's like, yeah, it went really bad. <laughs> and that was the first time she ever admitted it. And I was just like, I was almost like, there was almost a little tiny thing in the back of my head all like for 10 years. It's been like, well, maybe it wasn't that bad. But then she came back. <laughs> yeah, that was awful. And then like, yeah, so that fueled my shower moments for the next week. I'm like, yeah, it was really bad. And so I've, I've dreamt about it a couple of times since, but that's fine. I, that leads us into, uh, I've, one of the things that's most fascinating to me, or at least most intriguing is how somebody that covers, cause I obviously know some of the stuff that you cover, like really highbrow stuff, mm. uh, and, and I don't mean this as like a, cause I've lived in Appalachia before, but how does that, how does that like interest be cultivated right. growing up in West Virginia? That's yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Who's I mean, historically 20 years or 30 years behind everything well, else. I have to do the obligatory chip on my shoulder Appalachian thing and being like, well, it's not all like that, but you no, know, there is a sparse amount of, of fine art in the way that I'm interested in it. Right. Sure. Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, but there, you know, the the thing is, I grew up in the west, the side of West Virginia, uh, beside Pittsburgh, and so uh, in seventh or eighth grade, we took a. I was an art club, um, all through school, and then we took this trip. You know, it was like a weird flex there. Yeah, I was an art club. It's <laughs> <laughs> president senior year. Uh, so we went up to the Warhol Museum, and um, and and before that, I mean, we were in art class. We you know you learn Van Gogh, and you learn you know all these um, sort of blue chip classical artists. But Warhol was the first one that really, um, I didn't know you could do that with art. Um, soup cans, soup cans, yeah, exactly. I also was really into soup, <laughs> right? So Huge. it was right up my alley. Um, but you know, it was a thing of here's this. Um, and, if and nobody feels more ostracized anyways than a seventh grader. Um, like, a, you know, feeling there was something I, as an outside, you know, because you, you, you're you just dumb and you feel that you have this sort of persecution complex. Um, and then you you learn about somebody who's actually ostracized and actually like made art in the face of all this stuff, but made interesting art and decided to market himself, think about the way we present ourselves as a character in our own narratives. Mm-hmm. Um and so, yeah, his work just completely wrapped me up. And so then from there... Did uh, you get that at the time as a seventh grader? I got a Cro-Magnon version of it. I got a very basic... I knew it was different. I knew that it was... He was special. And I and it was the... It was, you know, and, and the, the the luxury of going to a place like the Warhol versus going to a place that has twenty placards with little paragraphs about people is that you re, it was a really immersive. It, they really held your hand because it's a bunch of middle schoolers, um, and so they really bring you in. And and there's a there's a room called the cloud room with these like sort of floating mirror uh, pillows, and um, so it's just like a really surreal experience and it's like really mountaintop. It's almost like young life camp mountaintop, uh, mm-hmm. best week of your life. And you come back and you're like, oh, where's the Warhol? There's, I'm, uh-huh. I'm back in New Martinsville, West Virginia. And, but then it, it started fostering this thing in me where I, you know, I try to look for the thing that's, I try to look for the progressive art wherever I am. And you, you can find, I mean, uh, we had the way I found that in New Martins, West Virginia was a thriving DIY punk scene, uh, house show scene. And so, um, those are the things I seek out. 
those are the things that, uh, the weird things, the things, you know, that that's to say, I do have a, a line. We've talked about the things I have to experience as an arts writer sometimes where I almost have to put up the, the serious faces. Like I get this. Oh yeah. Um, and th- there was a, <laughs> uh, I was in, uh, and this is not a flex, but I was at Art Basel last <laughs> a couple last month, and um, what is that for people who don't know? Oh, sorry, it um, it was a series. It's By a series that he of means art, me. Yeah, right. uh, a series of art fairs that happen in Miami every year, and what happens? If it's visual art, like a, a imagine a warehouse full of visual art. Um, but sometimes you'll have somebody who really goes the extra mile. We'll do the performance art in the middle of the uh, room, and an acquaintance of mine came up and laughed, and I said, "Why?" And he said, you should have seen your face when you stepped over that performance art because you were the most disgusted <laughs> I've ever seen anybody in my life. Uh, so it's not, I'm not always great at hiding it. But, I mean, the, the, there, is a, there is a sweet spot for me when something is progressive and interesting and it's different than anything I've ever seen before or it is reminiscent enough of the things that I uh, check all the boxes for me that I, I usually look for those things wherever I am. And that was part of the reason we moved from West Virginia to... Charlotte is, is in West Virginia there. I was not doing exactly what I want to do. I was working a newspaper, not doing exactly, I had this sort of weird freelance career that was still boxed in by where it was. And so we wanted to move to a, a place where there was enough going on, but you could also stand out as an arts writer, uh, where it didn't have, uh, necessarily a, um, a, a lot of gatekeepers to writing about art. You didn't have to, you could kind of hit the ground running. And I found that here pretty quickly. Um, so going back to the, you know, the trajectory from, in a sense, Warhol to the punk music scene or whatever, mm. it's like, did you, uh, did you have to find your own, own niche there? Like, I, I can't imagine that leaving the Warhol Museum, the bus ride home back to Western or rural West Virginia, the conversation amongst the rest of the seventh grade boys had to do with the meaning of the art in the moment. Like, right. Um, did you notice, did you notice that you, even at that point, were beginning to start to think differently than, than kids around you? Well, first of all, you're right in saying I only talked to boys, but girls didn't talk to me. I, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you picked on that <laughs> assumption. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, there were a few people, um, I mean, I was always, I thought from when I was a kid that I was headed to New York City. That's like, I was just like, I was an indoor kid. I, you know, we lived on tens of, you know, tens of acres of land. That's a really stupid way to put that. 50 acres of land. And then I, um, I was an indoor, but I just spent that time inside reading comics or watching movies about New York City and thinking, oh, I'm more of an urbanite, I think. Um, and so there was always that promise in my head, which is why I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina. <laughs> uh, but what happened was I, at some point, you know, no, there wasn't a ton of art conversation. There was more conversation about um, comics, about things that um, are actually the Venn diagram of of weird and interesting. And, you know, when being, I was always a nerd. I was always a peripheral nerd for a lot of things. I, I had D&D friends, of course, but I never played D&D. Or I Dungeons had, and Dragons. Dungeons and Dragons. I had musician friends, but was the guy that wrote for the zine locally, you know? So there was, I was never quite at the forefront of any of these. I was, um, 
so uh, you know, I kind of navigate. I kind of just was very fickle. I would just nap, pick something up, put it down, pick something up, put it down. And that was probably more me than anything. Um, my need to sort of over, you know, dive right into something, lose a little bit of interest, um, or keep going and sort of be my own little niche inside of that thing. Um, like plug one little hole up in that thing. And then in, in theater, in high school theater, that was playing like really never lead characters. It was always um, a side character, like a like a little rotund, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, w- like weirdo, quirky thing, doing a weird voice or something. It was just like, I'm, I'm just going to just do something a little bit different. Um, and it was probably some unfulfilled I needed attention thing as well but um are you trying to fit into dominant like seventh grade boy culture at this whole podcast is going to be about your trip to the Andy Warhol museum (laughs) yeah but are you are you because I'm imagining people walking around that hitting each other in the nuts like not caring about anything except for the fact they're going to go to the mall afterwards or something (laughs) yeah uh or are you walking around like moved or is it like tucked away like okay I'm this there's something that sparked with this I would be lying if I painted myself as this intellectual above the rest. I, right. I, I, at the end of the day, am not that smart, and I'm and I and base humor always made me laugh. Oh so yeah. I was the guy that really got along with the popular kids uh-huh. and could be again conversational in the language and know just enough about basketball to not get beaten up right. or not get, you know, yeah. uh, so it was a thing of like, I never, that's why all of my sports knowledge is the nineties because that was when it was most <laughs> useful to me. Like I could talk about Troy Aikman, Michael Urban, <laughs> uh, Emmett Smith. Uh, I just named three Cowboys. See, it's so limited. Uh, but yeah, I, that was when that was most, um, that had the most currency, right. was like sports knowledge because you just want to not be, the weird kid who wears jinkos, you know? So in (laughs) check out these pogs. Yeah. I didn't have jinkos by the way. (laughs) Absolutely. So you were, you were pre, um, before kind of like that whole comic book subculture became. Yeah. The nerd thing. Yeah. Same thing with emo. Yeah. I mean, because they, it just took enough of us nerds to, you know, to make it a, a pop thing. Right. Um, so yeah, I, I was always, not always, not like, you know, I wasn't into pogs before they were pogs, but there were a couple things where I happened to be, I happened to start dating girls when emo became cool. It was very useful. Like all of a sudden, oh, it's a, it's kind of cool to play acoustic guitar and be kind of lame. And so that helped. Um, and yeah, so those that was good timing on some of those things, but some things completely messed me, of course, like everyone else. Um, but I think, yeah, when the emo thing happened, um, there were already, and this is the most pretentious thing you can talk about. There were already three waves of emo before emo became of cool. Of course. You know, yeah. Um, which isn't as bad as my friends who say, talk about the waves of ska, because nobody ever really cared about ska that much. At least emo had a moment. Uh, ska has always been ska. Um, that said, I've seen a lot of ska bands live. Uh, but yeah, yeah. So, it, yeah, it, for a couple things like that, it was yeah, comic book movies kind of came in and and made comic books like such a pop. Um, it was always pop, but it became so everyone had a shorthand for it. everyone knew it. Everyone uh, has seen several comic book movies by now, um, and 
if and I always thought like when when I got tired of comic book movies, I'm like, there's got to be way more people. Because if I'm the sort of target audience and I'm tired of comic book movies, it must be sort of a there's got to be some fatigue that exists within people who didn't obsess over growing up. Um, but yeah. So what are we talking comics wise? Uh, like what were, what were you into? I was I was uh, um, pretty open to pretty much anything. I had uh, I was a Marvel guy, Marvel superhero guy. That was my base. But I collected everything. Um, and was just, the internet a thing at the time? No, not until m- end of middle school did I start entering the Yahoo chat room <laughs> or the Yahoo pool. I was with Yahoo pool shark for a while. Uh, but yeah, I, it wasn't. No, I mean, there was comic book stores. There were comic book stores. We didn't have any because uh, we were in New Martins of West Virginia. But uh, <laughs> They they were they were out there. I mean, when I went to college, there was a comic book store there that I sort of the guy was so awesome. He put my college newspaper comic book articles on the wall, um, and so that's how cool that was. But uh, for me, growing up, the way, and it's almost like you planned this. I was into Wizard Magazine, which got me into journalism. Uh, Wizard Magazine was a comic book magazine. Um, that, Nerd. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. And I was obsessed with it. And I was like, oh, you can actually you don't have to write about. I don't know, men's fit, you know, or like Max and Magazine. You don't have to be, you know, you don't, you can, you don't have to write about bucks and babes. You can write about nerd, nerdy stuff. Um, because Maxim was sort of the most dominant newsstand magazine at the time, but Wizard was the sort of secondary down here at Walmart thing. And I'd be like, oh, what is this? And I got obsessed with it. And then my parents would re up my subscription every Christmas and it sort of became my first inkling that because I was never really great at writing fiction I was always better at talking about things that already existed or contextualizing maybe explaining it in a way that was approachable and so the way they wrote about comics um, really you could take it seriously but you could also have this sort of self-facing attitude about everything like we are nerds but we care a lot about this and so I think that has informed the way we write about art a lot, which is sort of break through the artist statement ease or the academic way of thinking about art and realizing no one needs to look at a piece of abstract work. You don't need any schooling. You don't need any formal training. It's just, it, there are just a few things that are just a point of entry into completely changing the way you look at work. So, yeah, that's interesting. So do you think, I mean, you know, do you think that in a sense, not coming from a, I don't know, an art dominant right. place or culture, mm-hmm. that it was almost an advantage to you to be able to not have to unlearn some of the... Yeah, yeah, I do, I do, yeah. And and having parents that were so game for putting the things in front of me that I like had a thirst for and recognizing that because, you know, I had no money when I was eight, but the fact that my parents were like you know, just point to the direction you want to go and we'll try to encourage that and whatever it is, whether it's pick me up and drop me off at theater practice or whatever it is, you know, like getting me comics every year. And, um, yeah. And so my parents are super encouraging that and probably my truly my, my, I, I have terrible listening comprehension. I, I'm just, there are some things that I just have to do before I get, um, and I think that forces you into a voice that's a little bit more, um, it, it forces you to break things apart a little bit and try to separate them into chunks that are, are digestible. And I think that t- 
tendency of mine was part of that as well. Hmm. Do you think, so, you know, early on, you learned in a sense to like what you like, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you're, I'm sure, you know, you weren't at, in sixth or fifth grade or whatever, or at whatever age thinking, I want to like comic books because it'll make me cool and popular and all these right. kinds of things. So learning, I think that's, what a valuable thing at early on, right? Is just to simply learn to like what you like. And yeah. so how does that translate into being an art critic then? As far as, uh, you know, to me personally, I might not be able to say, I, I love art. I just, re I respect it so much, but it's more from the standpoint of, I can tell you what I like. I can tell you what moves me, right. things like that. But I wouldn't be able to tell you a single thing about the technique or anything like that, or be able to write an intelligent article on why or why I do not like something other than the fact that it has moved me emotionally. And so I like it. So is, I mean, is that kind of something that has always been a part of you just being able to be bold enough to like what you like? Yeah, I think, I think there is, I think that letting your gut sort of pull you into things is, is a, is a great way to do it. Even does uh, that work for an art critic or are there rules you have to follow? Um, it, I, in the beginning, I thought it would work. And then I realized I owed the reader a lot of reading and mm -hmm. a lot of learning um, in order to contextualize it for them. And it actually becomes even more interesting to you when you realize the lineage of things. Um, so for me, at the very, you know, when I was a college journalist at the school newspaper and, and was just sort of figuring it out, it was horrific because it was just like I thought I could get by on like being kind of funny and you know, making it like a blue collar guy, you know, like, and then I'm like, no, I mean, you know, then you read, you read something that makes you look at and be like, oh, you can be intelligent, but not be pretentious, or you can be um, analytical and not be boring. Um, and so and that stick wouldn't take you far. It wouldn't take you far. No, it might get you. Um, it, it might get you to a, I, I don't want to be demeaning about it. It might get you to a certain local level some places. Right. Um, but you're not going to have a national voice doing that. No. And, and, and you're not going to, and it's just not going to stick for you. If you, if you like go off of what you have in here, I mean, I don't have many gigs up there. I have to like sort of let go of things before I absorb new ones. Um, and so I, I feel like for me, it's a constant relearning process. I, I still, if I'm going to a show, if I'm going to the Getty and I see, um, the water lilies, the famous, you know, the famous Van Gogh pieces, I will, um, sorry, my name pieces. Um, I will do some reading beforehand, uh, about my, my favorite critics and what they've said about them and, um, and the things that they notice and see, I, I just find that sort of a treasure hunt in a way. Cause I, have my context for it. I kind of like to live in someone else's head for a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, if I'm writing about something professionally, I go in a little bit more cold, but for frenzies, I like to live in the other critics heads a good bit. And, and is there a deep, does it like, if, if this wasn't your career, mm -hmm. would you still be finding yourself in galleries all over the place and taking in art? I don't know. That's a good question. I think for me, I happen to have a career that's that involves things that are fun to me. Um, but I also am overextended mm -hmm. constantly. 
And inundated with the same thing, right? Inundated. And, and, and also being a parent, you know, I don't know if I would give myself the same agility to be able to make those openings and also come back. You know, I, if it weren't for me being on the hook to know this stuff, uh, I'd probably go to less things. But I think I would go, I would probably still go to museums if I were visiting a new city and wanted to see what the city was about. I'd go to the museum. And be genuinely moved by things. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um but I don't. I don't think I would be on such a schedule or such a um, be so um, disciplined about it if there weren't um, some exchange of of vocation involved. I'm I'm glad that you uh, mentioned performance art being weird because you and I have had a million conversations about my hate for it, <laughs> and because I don't understand it at all. Right. So is there a part? Is there a part of it that you feel like? if you have to write about something like that and it's just abhorrent to you, mm-hmm. you know, or maybe not abhorrent, but just so bizarre, like, is there a piece of it where you've got to perform uh, what an art critic would say about it? Or is there, is there any outlet that you have that you could be like, this was nothing to me? Um, I don't, it, it, performance art, using that as an example, is not something I know a lot about. So I don't, don't I, write about it. I much. don't write about it. Yeah. Um, I'd see myself as having a responsibility to not critique something that I don't have um, a grasp on. Yeah. Uh, yeah and yeah. so um, the things I've, it's been mostly visual art. Sometimes it's been theater because I have a, a, a background in theater. Um, but I won't do, I don't, I, I try to do a critic, piece of criticism in, in college on uh, orchestral performance and it was horrific. Um, just because I didn't, I, you know, I have a, I know the hits, I know like the, now that's what I call music version of classical music (laughs) for a century, but I don't have the, you know, I, it doesn't go much deeper than Chopin for me or something like that. What were you saying, Steve? Well, I was going to ask, I thought that was, you know, an interesting, interesting question if, um, you know, if you, if it wasn't a career, if you'd find yourself going to galleries and, and, you know, being a self-described jack-of-all-trades and with multi-faceted... That really makes me sound like a, a pretentious jerk. But yeah, right, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. You're right. Yeah, I did you were that. saying you were good at so many things. Yeah, I you think. said, yeah. I lose track of the things that I'm amazing at. Right, yeah. 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 But so, of the things that you do then, mm-hmm. in a sense, if, if they weren't careers, what would you find yourself doing? Hmm. If I, like, if I had open time, if I... Well... I would like, so you are, you're an editor, you're a writer, you're right. all of these things, you know, take career, take paycheck out of, out of all of those, um, maybe going to an art gallery and, you know, being a critic would become more of a hobby once in a while type thing. Or right. what of, what are the things that you are doing would then take center stage and, and be the thing that minus a paycheck, this is what I would still be pouring myself into. Yeah. I mean... I think if our, yeah, I think I would be more interested in not, not my kids in general, but I would, I would be really pursuing building a visual literacy with my kids um, and doing it and experiencing art that way. Cause there's something really fun about watching kids in a gallery or in a museum, try to make sense of it. Um, and, and, giving them a tiny nudge here and there to show them, you know, you like this, you like this. Like I'd probably be doing more 
development for teenagers and kids um, who have a passing interest in art. Almost as a nod to you as a high school kid or a middle school kid. Like, yeah, there's some like, yeah, like full circle thing. Right. Is there, Um, is there anyone during that period or whatever, middle school, high school, whatever that you broke out of what was societal norm that you were like, man, this person has extremely great taste or is interesting or that took you under their wing and nudged you in some, one of those directions. I mean, yeah, my grade school art teacher um, was huge. Mm -hmm. Herman Winland. Um, Shout out. Shout out. Um, He, yeah, he was this fantastic teacher who saw how nerdy I was and like had a really eclectic taste would play instrumental native American music and then play Leon rhymes is blue in the same hour. And I was like, okay, I'm into it. Yeah. I'm like, you know, when I look at my playlist today and Amazon music, plus it's sponsored by Amazon music. It right? is. Yeah. 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 When I'm taking out my pixel two phone and <laughs> um, that's why it's so Leon <laughs> rhymes heavy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm big rhymes head. Um, yeah. Uh, no, like, so he kind of showed me that you could have these, really sporadic interest in kind of, um, and just be okay and lean into it. I have often on listened to the spawn soundtrack for the past 15 years. That there's no reason for me. That's, that is not cool. Has never been cool. <laughs> the spawn soundtrack. And, uh, it's a weird thing, you know, to when you're, when you're a middle schooler and you're trying to figure out like you have to pick lanes if you want to you know be considered if you want to be notable because you like do that thing but at the same time i knew that he had so much confidence and so he took it wasn't even confident and it was it was inhabiting in sort of experiencing the curating your own sort of experience and curating your own um what goes in and and you can do that in a way that's comfortable and healthy and only listen to like only read white dudes ever in your life, but there is a way to do it where you're truly open to anything and letting things hit you whenever they pop up. Isn't it strange how, how limited we become in the things that we think that we should be able to enjoy? Like we fall into, you know, whatever category it is. And, and we just then look to the crowd to, to decide whether or not is this okay for me? Right. You know, you're the, you're the country Western kid. So I'm supposed, you know, what if I want to wear, what if I want to wear Pumas instead of, right. You know, why can't I do Tangle that? Hat. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, that was me. No. Uh, yeah, no, I agree. I agree completely. Even when emo became a thing and then you look back and, and realize we are, um, pretending to be outsiders and persecuted together. And there's something really weird how you're sheep that think of yourselves as loners. You know, you're sort of this field of hair swooped, like emo. Me and my 300 friends from my hometown. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, yeah, that's, and that's what, you know, and looking back now, that was also, there was a comfort in it because it sets you up as the protagonist. And that's why everyone gravitated toward it to begin with, because um, everybody feels a little bit, you know, like an outsider sometimes. Uh, but it's weird to find comfort in being the out, you know, it's like you ever met somebody who's just so precious about their interests in a way that's like, you know, I'm a weird guy. I'm just into jazz and, you know, like, but (laughs) it's like the most, you know, it's safe. Yeah. And it's like, no, this is Panera music, (laughs) right? (laughs) It's nothing weird about it, you know, or, you know, it's like, or, you know, we've talked about the guy who like, 
wears flip flops and shorts in the winter. And it's like, he's like a superhero because he is. Like, <laughs> oh, I'm not cold. No, 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 I'm no. Good. Or like, I don't want to sit. No, I don't. I don't I've been, I've been <laughs> sitting all day. It's like, okay, you're interesting. Uh, which, uh, yeah, it sounds hateful, but uh, yeah. So I, I think there is a, there's a way there's like the balance of like being okay to also like game of Thrones, even though everybody likes it, but also being okay that you're the only one that liked you know, the Wiggles or something like that. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's like... It's an odd pull. Yeah, you know, I, uh, the Wiggles are coming to Charlotte and I got a press release about that earlier today, so that's why I said it. But yeah. I. So, you talk about... This is going to sound demeaning. I don't mean it this, this Please way. Please demean me. Um, so, you talk about, like, having that guy in college put your, put your article up on the wall for yeah. the comic book shop. So, in some ways, that's like, you know, oh, that's cute or whatever. But... There's, I mean, there's thousands and thousands of people that would love, like, you were probably revered in that circle then because of that, because you was well, no one doing it. Well, <laughs> you know what I mean? It, Actively doing it. But there are, there right. are lots of people that have opinions about comic books right. that are excited to tell you about them. And so I guess the thing that I'm saying is like, take something niche like that. Cause you're in Morgantown. Mm-hmm. And writing that, and here's like a micro little culture of a comic book shop, right. which has its own rules and its own hierarchy. And you can be the most popular person and legitimately feel like a rock star within that right. little bubble. I'm just extrapolating that out into other little subcultures. I no, don't, I don't know anything about art, comic. That's art. I mean, so that's where I'm going with that. Yeah. Like, so now, I one of the things I want you to talk about is like when I found out you were writing for this magazine, High Fructose, which is like had never heard of it, but f- come to find out it is this huge deal. Sure. Does it feel like a bigger version of that? Like you are semi-famous or well-known or however you <laughs> want to say it within this thing. So it feels, I mean, it feels like you, I don't know. Is that any of that no, makes sense? No, I, I would say the, the big shift that, that makes a lot of sense. The big shift for me that happened was, um, when to be a writer, there, there's a little bit of hubris. There's a little bit of ego involved, of course. Sure. Um, but I started out my career really liking being the voice of something. Right. That has um, seesawed into me. The, the balance is now more so that I'm, I take a lot more pleasure in telling stories about artists or mm-hmm. telling or talking about the art. It's about the art or it's about the reader. And I think that was the key that unlocked local journalism to me, national journalism, all of it was that I, you really have to understand that instead of being sort of, uh, you have your fiefdom of, of you know, I'm uh, this, I have this status in this ecosystem. You think about, well, am I really, am I really serving the ecosystem? Am I really doing anybody? Am I really doing this justice or am I, um, I'm just, am I just trying to be that person? And I've seen that shift, not shift in you as if you were like some egomaniacal, whatever person early on, but that transition from hustle my way into, cause it, I mean, again, West Virginia, small, you were at a right. newspaper at some point and to go from that into, okay, now I have this platform I can either pivot and try to keep hustling upward or I can use the platform I have to like bring people's voices that matter into places of prominence kind of lend my voice to people is that something does that seem right 
Yeah, that is what it is. Um, that is what it is. Uh, yeah, I mean, and that was even become these being involved in local journalism when I got in was like, how do I become a local voice? Whatever that says about me, it shifted to how to how do I get people that um, are groups of writers um, or people that don't get that opportunity institutionally or it's designed that way or it's you know it's the it's the thing of um you know there there are there are there's a thing that i think happened for some of us in the past three or four years where we really had to reckon with privilege and uh because it became the popular consciousness took a step forward right and, well maybe not everybody obviously but i think there are there's a at least a movement a swath of people right yep. that decided that oh okay i actually have a responsibility mm -hmm. that i didn't ever really take you know because you know being from west virginia i always had that chip on my shoulder of being you know um i'm supposed to there's the you know i grew up in an area that wasn't wealthy mm -hmm. um and wasn't necessarily um open to outside uh, outsiders or, you know, there's very much a, and there's something in, and, and there's something really fantastic about the way West Virginia is loyal to itself and, or the people are loyal to the state. Deeply loyal. Yeah. Deeply loyal. And, but there's also, you know, there, it has every, every culture has the, the upsides and downsides of that attitude. But for me, it's like, um, being from a rural place, being from Appalachia was like, Oh, okay. I, I'm from a place that's not, the mainstream. Mm -hmm. And so you kind of, you know, you have, you talk to somebody in, from a small town, West Virginia, they don't privilege seems so foreign to them. Cause it's like, I've, I have kind of a hard life. So, right. Um, and then you realize there are shades to everything. There are shades to, um, privilege. There are shades to sexuality. There are shades of so many things and that nothing is binary. And in a different degree, you know what it is to be someone without a voice in, even if it's sure. in a very small way, I'm not trying to, no, yeah, say it's equal, but yeah, exactly. Um, and I think also as insufferable as it sounds, having daughters, not that I was a, uh, insane maniacal sexist beforehand, but it definitely underscored those things about male privilege in specific, mm -hmm. um, that I, um, and the things I liked like emo music, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. that were all about building me up as sort of the, 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 you know, this is just my world. I'm the, I'm, a lot of white dude I'm the main character. Yeah. yeah. Everyone else is sort of the side character and I'm on, I'm sort of on this Joseph Campbell quest all the time to, um, find, express myself, express myself. Yeah. Yikes. As if it's like me, you know, we're so bored. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, and that's the whole thing. And that's, and that's where I think I, I realized, Oh, this is not just my personal life where I need to grow. This is professionally. Um, and so when I figured I didn't, and I'm still figuring it out. But when I when I began that pursuit, I think it started lending itself more to the work, and in and and I was getting better at digitally curating the website. I tried to think of more of the reader's shoes. What does a charlatan want? What do we? What should we be telling them? What are the stories they don't know and need to know? Um, what is, you know, not just um, what's cool or what will get, and in, in our industry, clicks. And you but exposure, me exposure. Specifically, that's a, that's a part of it. Yeah. Uh, what you know? How do we? You know, there was a time where I would take you know because I I'm, I have five Instagram accounts on my 
phone that I have to post to every day. I mean, I don't want you to brag. Yeah, <laughs> which is not, which is actually miserable. Uh, no, no, it's not miserable, <laughs> but it's not like having multiple Twitter accounts, especially is not a luxurious thing once you're in it. But no, it's fun. But there was a time when I would credit myself for taking a dumb picture and posting it to a, a, a local publications account as if like it should still come back to me. I should still get some cloud out of it. Right. But now it's just like, who cares about my Instagram account? Like, who, but can you take a picture of me right now and post it on? The yeah, with <laughs> you're on every feed right now. It, there's a thing of like, and, and that's when I stopped posting trying to be funny on Twitter as much because there was a time where my account was called Andy Smith, LOL, because I was, it was a dumb account, a joke account. Um, and then I just kind of abandoned that. And I still make dumb jokes if it's Friday night and we're staying in and the kids are in bed. I'm right. like sitting there like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> we look such a weird world. Uh, but yeah, so I, there just became less about my brand, which is just even, I want to throw up saying it, but there was, there was a time where my brand was more of a curated thing. And some people would still tell me that's the wrong way to approach your career. Well, I was going to say, I just it, don't care right now. Has it, do you feel like that being focused on the other and kind of losing ego or trying to at least has helped you? Or do you think that you've seen other people surpass you that I could have taken that path and gotten whatever the next rung up is? Yeah. I mean, if, if you want attention, you can get it. On yep. the internet. Um, I can be a whataboutist and get a lot of attention really quickly. I think working in digital media, you see how easy it is to get attention. Clicks, yeah. But to get good attention or to inform or entertain, that's a really hard thing to do well and to do it with nuance and to pretend that there's more than one side of a story, all that stuff. So to me, um, I almost um, am always chasing... I almost delete my personal account every day because I'm just like, I really don't need this thing to be fulfilled. Right. And that's only, I mean, that's also because I'm lucky enough to have a great family as well. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so that's, that's part of it too, is kind of settling into dadhood. (laughs) Do you see the same shifts in the art that you are covering? Like, is there just this whole thing of where you want to throw up when you see an obvious work that is just about creating a brand versus genuine expression or it's 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 yeah i mean there are those things i get more upset by people who lift from other artists and pretend it's exotic um you know that you see basquiat or whatever basquiat is yeah one of the most ripped off artists out there um and you see people trying can we clap for me for just like (laughs) 10 15 minutes yeah that's that's part of it um but i more these days have a little bit more empathy for people who are just trying to make it and trying stuff out. And, and, and you kind of have to go astray sometimes to get there. There's always um, a game, no matter what the industry that you have to play to some degree, right? Right. Yes. And but I do think people should be open to criticism if they are putting themselves out there just as sure. we are as with our articles. I mean, I have every right, I think to go into a gallery, not dig the show and write about how I, why I don't dig it why I don't think it's successful and what's trying to do or why I think it's derivative or whatever thing you can say in that way. Um, so for me, it, it's, it's a balance. I, you know, I don't want to, I have, I've had a lot of really good journalism teachers or editors in my life who have told me like, don't throw away the part of you. That's a good person. Or has well, yeah, because you can do the you can do the critiques in a performative way, and exactly, and make right. the, even the critique about yourself. Yeah, exactly. The and, Simon Cowell thing. Yeah, right. and that can be fun to read, right? Um, and it can be, you know, it's almost like a uh, 
reality television show version of journalism where it's just like, wow, they really decided to not care, you know, but it's also, you realize there are people behind those things and they, and they, and that's not to say they're above criticism. If you, if you decide that I'm going to create, the world needs to hear my voice that comes with a, um, for better, a opening yourself up to criticism, um, and art. If you're, if you say, I want to make a career in art, and in, in Charlotte, there's a, there can be an allergy to, um, criticism. criticism. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and that's gotten better. Uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, depends on the sometimes, and sometimes I've been wrong too. I think that's another thing too. Um, sometimes I've gone back and I said, maybe that wasn't as good as I thought it was. Or, Do you apologize to an artist before? No, no, never. No, because, I think, you know, we're all, none of us are above um, judgment and none of us are above criticism when we decide to be public about our thoughts. And so I, I think that... And I, criticism is engagement, which means at least right. somebody's seeing it. Yeah, and, and there's a thing of like, I, just because I was wrong doesn't mean I, I, I still, my intention... I came from a place of typically knowing what I'm talking about. And I mean, at least in, in my eyes, I, I felt like I earned the the right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to me, pe- people are people. And that means that sometimes I'm not, I am a piece of criticism can be, is its own living organism and, and it can, you can change your opinions can change. Um, but if, if I, if I apologize, it would be because I, it would have to be something pretty serious. Like I really just um, didn't go Vin- or vindictively <laughs> set I, out to. Yeah. Yeah. I had it an agenda or, right. um, no, but if, if I, if I said, I, you know, I thought this was like really derivative. And then later I thought, maybe it's not completely biting this artist. I, um, I'm up for that conversation. Um, but I, I wouldn't say, you know, issue anything. Yeah. Um, you mentioned, uh, you said something along the lines of to be a writer is you'll need a little bit of a hubris or Mm -hmm. so an interesting thing to me sometimes is, is this is like, do you remember, do you remember the first time that you in a sense announced what you wanted to do? Because Mm -hmm. like if I, for example, you know, if I, as a child announced that I wanted to be a lawyer Mm -hmm. in doing that, I probably would be applauded and I would be saying that. I want to go and study and learn how to practice law, you know, but when it comes to whether we're talking about being an artist, being a writer, that whole category, two things are happening when you finally decide to announce that. I think one is like, uh, there's a pressure to phrase it in a way that makes it seem like it could actually potentially lead to a 401k, you know, so I have to make it sound a little bit more corporate, but then also there's, it's almost, there's, there is a little bit of arrogance to it because if I said I wanted to be a writer, I'm almost already announcing that I'm good at this, you know, or right. even an artist. My, my thoughts deserve to be put on paper and distributed. Right, <laughs> right, right. And so I guess, do you remember res- either wrestling with that? Do you remember when you made the announcements of what you wanted to do and what kind of reactions you received? Yeah, Especially I mean, going back, sorry to interrupt, but no. especially, you know, it's the whole thing of, you know, Christmas break, going back to your hometown or whatever, and hey, what have you been up to? Right. You know, that, 
and I grew up in extremely rural Western Pennsylvania, so I understand you go back into a certain culture and make announcements like, oh, I want to, you know, I want to be a doctor and all. Who's this big shot? Or Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, I, I mean, I had such a support network in my, you know, my family. I mean, they were just so, there was, I mean, if I told my parents that I wanted to do anything, that they, they would have endorsed it. Um, what did they do? Um, my dad worked at a chemical plant um, for many years um, as a handyman, and my mom was a housewife. Um, and so... You had a ton of siblings too, right? Four older sisters, yeah. That's right. um, and we all had some interest, you know, so we had some interest that lined up and some that didn't. But I... Um, when I made the erupt, you know, because up until I was 18, I, I thought I was going to be a comic book artist and writer. That was the plan. And then were you telling people that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was making them. And then I got to senior year of high school was thought, I was, you know, it was going to be an early talks to do art school. And then I had a, I realized that art had become not as fun for me to do. And I felt, uh, and it was, I mean, who knows really, you know, you, there are, it's, it's, it's so long ago now. It's, it's funny to think about, but, uh, I had been told I had also composition, you know, courses and did college English classes when I was in, in, in high school and I was told I had a good nonfiction voice. So I'm like, I kind of like this more. And then I'm, I'm just so fickle at that age that I'm like, yeah, I want to change my life trajectory just as if it doesn't like, as if it's me deciding to stop taking swim lessons, you know, um, and so I went to Western University, and and there, um, there weren't a lot of people writing about art. Mm. Um, and so, the people who wanted to write about art wanted to write about live music, or they, um, or it was just sort of a you know, um, we had arts writers for the newspaper there, but it was so is you know there were not many of us that that was our thing. That was like we're going to try to make a career out of this. But you know, all my friends that from my hometown. Um, were not really involved in that part of what I did. They were um, our interests lined up in the music we liked, the movies we liked, but visual art was so sort of divorced from that. Um, it was kind of a solitary thing. Um, and I and and, and there's still I still feel like there are a lot of people in my life that are not involved in visual art at all. And it's not that like parents don't understand kind of thing, but they really don't know what it is that I do and that's fine I think it's you know I I you know my wife was a middle school teacher for several years I will never truly understand what it takes to get up in front of a bunch of 13 year olds right <laughs> three hours throughout the day and so to me there is um there's always been a bit of distance between people in my life and in in the visual art part of my life that's not to say I don't have friends in visual art but um the people that walk both worlds are rare yeah. For me. They don't they don't inter they don't intersect they don't yeah, intersect too much. Yeah. I I wonder and <clears throat> it doesn't have to be a super thought thought out or long answer or anything, but is there any Good. way <laughs> is there any way Why start now? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Heck, yeah, it's been terrible. Uh is is there any way that you see like faith informing what you do with the arts? Is there is there any parallel that you sense? Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, the most sort of metaphysical experiences I've had have been through via art. Mm. Um, 
And, you know, I, I think the church has a really interesting history when it comes to art and the depictions of biblical scenes from the, you know, going from that course, to yeah. um, the, the sort of the abstract expressionists of the mid 1900s who decided to sort of create this new way of expressing themselves. And <clears throat> that stuff is even more spiritual to me than um, Old Testament tales told through figurative, realistic figurative painting. Like yeah, that course, stuff yeah. can be... Um, whether it's somebody like Robert Motherwell or Romare Bearden, um, who are accessing something in themselves that is, uh, or something, a, a faith portion of their life, whether it's searching or whether it's arrived or, you know, it's never really arrived, but whether it's something that they're deeply rooted in, it's like writing. It's like, to me, um, I would probably get more out of Flannery O'Connor spiritually than I would, um, like one of the mega pastor, one of mega church pastors who write a book about, oh. uh, you know, politics of and, course. and navigating, <laughs> faith, you know? Um, so there, you know, when, when artists have some faith, um, it, it's, it's sort of like science to me and, and sort of being sort of a, a, a armchair paleontologist at the same time, the questions that these things pose have really interesting spiritual answers to me and, and whether it's um, why humans develop consciousness in their evolution or why paintings, a painting of a red stain can make you cry or why something, you know, so confounding. And, and, and I, and I like also reading the scientific explanations for these things. I like reading people who say, well, that's because there's something subconscious in your mind that it reminds you know there's some sort of weird like uh alchemy happening in your brain where things are lining up in a certain way but as if that removes the mystical aspect exactly of it. Yeah. to me that, that yeah those are the same answers in mm -hmm. some ways um and so you you take something that seemingly can't be answered that's just deep mystery that finds expression in art yeah as far more profound than someone trying to postulate or feign certainty about something. Yeah. Cause it's not the person, right? It's not, I am not the avatar for the, the great thought I'm having. It's this thing that I channeled and created, um, mm -hmm. which is what most every artist would say to some degree. Right. I mean, yes. there's probably no artist that would just simply say that what the work that they did was just purely theirs and not something that was inspired or right. had inspired them, right? And there are artists who would be horrified to know that I got some Christian-minded thing out of their work. Right. Or some, oh, right. Having anything to do with Judeo-Christianity, they would be, like, mortified. But I'm like, I'm sorry. I mean, this is... Interpretation is yours. It's not theirs. Even right. if you make e art, right? Even though intention is a thing that's debated about all the time. Like, is you know, should... Does it belong to the viewer? Does it belong to the artist? Is it... Uh, all that stuff. I, th I think at the end of the day... Um, there are um, sort of um, avatar sprites, you know, uh, placed throughout your life that are intended for you to grab certain things from. And there are paintings that are directly, they are atheistic in nature, but uh, provide something really spiritual to me. You remember, or are you able to speak to maybe a, an experience, a specific experience? like peace that moved you or that's like secular in nature. Well, just no, even just in general, like just one that found you. Yeah. You found yourself being completely captivated by. Hmm. That's, that's, that's interesting. Um, I remember. I yeah. Rem well, while you're thinking, I mean, cause I just, you know, again, I can't speak to the specifics in the artist and all that kind of stuff, but I do, I just remember specific moments of, you know, 
there was this, it's probably somewhat famous as the statue of Mary holding this, the baby. And right. For whatever reason, just, you know, there's a thousand or more than that, um, you know, pieces of art that have uh, captured that image. But for right. whatever reason, it's, there was something about this one. I remember sitting around, it was like a Thanksgiving dinner with my whole family, and I forget why I was able to see it. And I was sitting there trying to hide tears. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's strange to me. I love the, the mystery that sometimes comes through something that just absolutely triggers something within you. Henry Nowen with Rembrandt's oh, Return of the Prodigal. Absolutely. Just, he, I mean, he said he's he spent literally days in mm-hmm. front of the painting, just, just looking for new things in it. Yeah, and I think you, there, um, you know, there's an artist named Andrew Wyeth who paints these sort of rustic figurative scenes that... Um, he kind of hit, and you know, he's from a family of artists, and he had this very particular way of uh, figuration where it was incredibly visceral and almost cinematic in a way. And, and before it would be, it, they they're at, almost out of time and how they are sort of visceral and but birthed from like 1923 or you know you know those. It, it doesn't seem like it, you can't really pinpoint when it was painted um, unless you know a lot about the person. Um, and there he, um, I wrote a story not too long ago about, um, he had a home in Maine that he visited and he would just go around sometimes and paint buildings and he had a, a lighthouse that he painted. Um, and lighthouses are like the, if you go to a beach, a gallery, <laughs> you can get 30,000 paintings of a lighthouse, but there was something about the way it was framed, about the stillness of it, about how quiet the scene was, um, how almost, um, it, there, there, it was it was in a state of decay almost at the same time. There was just something really um, quiet about it that forced me into a place of contemplation where I was more receptive to whatever I should have been, you know, something, a voice that could have appeared at that point. And I think that's the other thing too. It's like, you know, you sometimes it's not just even so much of an icon inside the work that makes you, reminds you of something. It's what it does to your brain what is the result of looking at it or does it take you to zero in a way that, um, you know, the acoustic rock that you usually listen to doesn't, you know, what, if something can completely rem- like take your stresses or whatever, jubilate, whatever you're feeling in the moment and take you down to sort of a flat line, that's a really fascinating thing. Um, and so that remind it, it kind of reminded like the intention there couldn't have been possible. And maybe it was, you know, but, I don't imagine that Andrew Wyeth was trying to make me uh, think about my entire life <laughs> uh, by a, and it wasn't, even, it was a study for a lighthouse uh, painting. So, you know, studies, he was one of those rare artists who their study, you know, a study to glossary here. Um, study is a, a, almost a sketch before the actual work. It's like them working out the logistics of the piece before they do it. And so those, he's one of those rare artists whose studies are almost singular works in themselves, wow. even though they are the template for what's to come after that. Um, Romare Bearden, same way. Yeah. Um, there's a Mecklenburg autumn, which is a work of his that harkens back to his time. And he only spent a couple of years here as a child, but they were so formative for him that he kept on coming back. And so there's a, it helped me connect to Charlotte in a way that um, I wasn't really expecting. Um, and so you, the, yeah, those connections are made for you in really unexpected ways and really unexpected places. And I, and I couldn't have a, a different, more different background than Romare Baird and, and his life and, and, and what the kind of the America he grew up in, in a sense. Um, but he was able to say something about 
what Charlotte was to him that really connected to me in that moment. And so you talk about, uh, the art being owned by the, the viewer of the, of the art yeah. and interpretation being up to them. I heard uh, Stanley Howarth one time say, somebody asked him if, if Paul could come in this classroom right now and, and tell us what he, what he meant by this passage in Romans. And Stanley Howarth said, I'd say, I'd tell him it doesn't, it doesn't matter what you meant. This, the text isn't owned by you. The text is owned right. by the church. So what the church has done with it is they, they themselves are the viewer or the reader or whatever. And so, I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, that is that's true. I mean, I think you look at um, a work like uh, Moby Dick and the fact that it had no impact at the time it came out. Right. But then when um, World War II came around and people were looking for answers, why is the world so screwed up? It became sort of this, to use the word again, avatar. Moby Dick became representation of something and it became this hit after he had died. Um it's fascinating because uh, Melville died um, because then it's, you know, it, it didn't belong to him anymore. Uh, unfortunately, and that he didn't really make anything off of it. But at the same time, it's kind of beautiful that um, sometimes we're not ready for the thing that's put out in the world. Well, so many, so many artists, it seemed at least from stuff that I've read is like lived in obscurity during yeah. the time that they produced the work. And, Maybe they live to see it become famous, but they're ahead of their time or whatever. Oh, it's a romantic thing too. I mean, people, people say that about, you know, there are plenty of artists that embody that, but people have said that about Van Gogh just because it sounds better to say that by Van Gogh. Van Gogh actually did get some attention for his crazy work. And and how many horrifyingly bad artists now are like, Oh, I'm just, yeah, I'm I'm just, they'll, they'll know what at one point, no, my noise rock album. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing too is, um, it's living also in the, the two truths. Like there's uh, the critic Jerry Saltz says that um, most art, maybe 85% is not good. Right. Yeah. Uh, but he says at the same time, my 85% is different than your 85%. Sure. So it's like, okay, so what's the answer? There's, uh, there is no objectivity in art. It's, I, it, you know, it's just, it's as objective, you know, objectivity being asked about objective, objectivity in art. It's like in journalism acting, acting, we're acting like humans aren't doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't pursue a, um, making a, good art or whatever, or making journalism that doesn't have a, that doesn't come from a place of judgment on either side of the story. Gotcha. But however you, it is human hands making it. And so and human hands, right? And you're writing it. So it's too right. it's too exactly. objective or too uh subjective yeah. pe- people yeah. in the Exactly. Yeah. And and I have vehemently disagreed with people who I think um are are right about mostly everything. And so mm-hmm. it's yeah, it's interesting. It, you, you it's like a constant um process of chasing humility but also become being confident that you deserve to say what you're saying and it's an interesting balance. Steve, is there any hot round things? Any quick questions? We're getting towards the end. Uh, I think we covered, in, to some degree, some of them already. But you know, maybe if you just want to speak, you know, a little bit more to a couple of these quickly. Sure. You know, um, we actually did talk about this in more detail earlier. But like, so all vocations have their stereotypes that. Mm-hmm. That, that come with them. Oh, you're a writer. Oh, so right. that means X, Y, and Z. Yeah. But give us a couple of things about you that would surprise us. Huh. Oh, wow. Huh. I don't know. I don't know if I'm a terribly surprising person. Us, the listener. We know <laughs> you pretty well. <laughs> I mean, um, I 
despite being a journalist, I am pretty active in my kid's life. <laughs> I think there's that thing that people think that to work in journalism, you're it's so wall to wall and it is demanding not to say it's not demanding, but you know, I, um, I think there is a way to balance being in media and being somebody who's active, whether through their account or someone else's account through social media while having a healthy, and I'm, it's not, it's sometimes it takes over ways it shouldn't. It's, it's always a pursuit to not let it, um, interfere, you know, too much. But, um, I think that you don't have to give up, um, having a family, uh, or having like being a, a better parent than a journalist, which right. is sh- what you should be. Yeah. Um, but there, I think the other thing too is people, you know, the intrepid journalist trope of, you know, like, uh, I'm just getting the story. It's way more important to me to be a kind person than a, than a, um, to get the story in, in the sense that people might think, you know, yeah. Um, and that's not to say to let people off the hook because there's like, you know, you can define kindness in a million ways. Um, but to me, yeah, it's that thing we talked about earlier, like letting go of being a good person <coughs> for this uh, pursuit of objectivity is, is not really an option. Yeah. And knowing you, I would even offer that as a journalist, um, my assumption would be uh, saturated with cynicism. And <laughs> and I don't get that. There's there's some of it. You, right? you have a level. Don't get I, me wrong. I, I think being a journalist, being a Christian, being you it's always in both hands the uh you you see the worst of people and you see the condition of people or i mean you see what you perceive as the condition of people and the worst of people but you also um have to have some sense of hope to keep going sure and so there is um and being somebody who um you know is uh anxious by a clinical perspective there is that as well. There's the balance of looking at things like trying to have a healthy admiration of people and not want their validation too much. Mm -hmm. And so I think that is the same sort of, um, not running on something that's so outside of you, right? Outside of your control. Yeah. So what's your favorite thing to read with your daughters? Oh, um, Elliot just started getting high. My oldest daughter, who's four, started getting highlights in the mail. They still make them. They make highlights, and she That's has amazing. a subscription. And to see her excitement at opening up a monthly highlights is the greatest thing ever. Margot's one, yeah. So I could read a pamper box to her right, right. now, and you know, but we 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 were starting to read to her, and we we have to because we're not monsters. But um, for uh, those are just fun little stories with five words per page. But um, when you have a four-year-old who's sort of figuring out humor is funny and is um, gets jokes, it's a really fascinating thing to experience. Isn't that... That makes me sound really negligent for my baby, but... No, but isn't it... It's the best. It's the absolute best. My... um, One of my favorite things about my kids is the fact that they, um, especially the oldest one, became obsessed with my old Calvin and Hobbes and my old far side books. Oh yeah. And one of my proudest moments was I heard my four year old back in the bathroom, you know, reading while doing his thing. Cause that's what we do. Yeah, sure. Started laughing out loud. And I said, what is it? And he told me, he said, 
so dad, there's this far side where Noah is on the boat and there's these line in the line of animals are waiting to get on. And the cap and the caption says, uh, has Noah saying, all right, uh, let's just do this alphabetically. And it just has the zebra saying, damn it. <laughs> yeah. One of my proudest parents. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. 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 Those. Yeah. When you see, uh, not only do they get the joke, but like when they are trying to recount it to you and losing it a little bit or like cracking a little bit, like, um, yeah, a good joke. Yeah. That's a big, that's a big, humor is such an important thing to me. Yeah. Um, and to see that being formed is just like so good. It it's is. The best. Yeah. Zeke only reads the Bible. So oh, yeah, yeah, I know. Well, yeah. I saw. <laughs> Which is hilarious. He actually, no, he's, yeah, I know he's a Tony Campolo fan. <laughs> <laughs> he started talking to me about, uh, you know, spreading our financial, you know, wealth throughout the church, but yeah. <laughs> Uh, my one of my questions is who is who is your favorite person? Well, not not your favorite person. Who's the person that you are most starstruck by when you? Because this is we haven't really talked about this, but you've interviewed a million people. You've done extremely cool things. You got like uh, Hamilton tickets and front row and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but who was the person that you were able to interview, comic or whatever, that was like very starstruck? Um, I was very nervous about Colin Quinn because, um, even though he's not the biggest comic I've, uh, ever talked to, he is a master of making you feel like Like nothing. Yeah. Just like (laughs) taking whatever insecurity you have and making something funny out of it. I, I did the same thing when I interviewed Jeff Ross several years ago, the, the roast master for the comedy central roast. And he, he roasted me and he roasted, did he really, he roasted West. I was in West Virginia at the time. And he's like, uh, yeah, I'm playing West Virginia, and it's the first club I ever played with a two tooth minimum. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, it killed. Like, <laughs> one time I was. Uh, I mean, the the worst stories I have because are in college because that was when I took every celebrity interview I could. Of course. Um, and there was an interview that um, Billy Bob Thornton had with QTV that was really famous at the time. It went viral because. Billy Bob Thornton was with his band, his terrible band, and he was being interviewed, but he only wanted to talk about the music and not about his acting. The first thing the interviewer brings up is his acting. Oh. And he tells, he says to the interviewer, would you ask Tom Petty that question? And like, <laughs> it's just like, just an ice box. <laughs> so what happened was a week later, I'm interviewing Michael Ian Black and Michael Showalter, who have a new show in Comedy Central, and every question I asked, they said, would you ask Tom Petty that question? <laughs> and I, at the if I was any good at the time, I would have turned that into the story. Like they did a bit with me the whole time. How lucky am I? But and I it didn't mortified. destroy. It was it was a conference call, uh, and so uh, everybody laughed but me. But I I only realized how funny it was later. Um, and they were trying to like the other thing. The other bit they had were they because it was a conference call, so it was me and a couple other student journalists at the time. Um, and so they were trying to pit us our schools against each other. Like, oh, that's a better school than the last guy. Um, and of course, Western University, and the, it was a Columbia person, but after me, they're like, oh boy, oh boy, I bet he's about, you know, it, so it was, at the time, I should have created a story out of it, like, this is what, these guys can't sort of escape this, or they're so bored with the, of doing, course, press uh, crap, they have to be interviewed yeah. for a comedy, yeah, and so, by dinks all over the country, exactly, with- um, the last couple of years, um, I was actually kind of nervous about Dolly Parton, for some reason, I interviewed <laughs> Dolly Parton, 
and I have no personal <laughs> relationship to her music too much or did you go first, to Gatlinburg and go to Dollywood? <laughs> no, we had a phone conversation, which is even easier than interviewing cele- I mean, celebrities in person because you don't see that they're, they're boredom on their face talking to you. Uh, but she was the sweetest human being in the world um, and just like was patient and liked my qu- I said she liked my question. I'm sure she told everybody she liked her questions that day. But um, but for some reason, when the, because she means something to so many people, I wanted to didn't want to screw it up didn't want to screw it up um and it wasn't yeah and so it, it wasn't like i was i wasn't starstruck i guess i was just more like realized that like if i am just if i don't like fill my head with dolly parton stuff a little bit before i talk to her then i'm not really doing the, the piece of service so i'm not like I, I should come in like people like to come in cold as if like they're they just like are the great um you filter through the the world should be viewed in. And to me, it's like I owe the subject. If I want to talk about their art, I need to experience their art. And so I spent like a week listening to way too much Dolly Parton, <laughs> or just w- too many Jolene covers. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you started the call with, uh, "Hey, I hope you don't mind. I'm going to sing." Yeah, yeah, I've got my version. <clears throat> yeah, I didn't clear my throat. It's a ukulele. It's really <laughs> unique. Can you hear it? Can you hear it? <laughs> yeah. All right, a couple more. Okay. Um, all right, just two more. This mm-hmm. one we uh, unapologetically steal from another podcast. Sure. Um, give it full credit, but I think it is a great question. Mm-hmm. What makes, like, what's one, what's a story where that you remember laughing the hardest? Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to think of something I can say that's not, uh, it's appropriate. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, the last, I mean, one time recently, not recently, I mean, this is maybe six or seven years ago, Sarah and I were, <laughs> I can't even really say it because it's not funny. Um, we were walking, there was a sign that said um, brownies. I don't know. Like it was like, <laughs> it was on a restaurant that said brownies. And I said, if I if I eat those, I'll be making brownies later. Something really, something poop joke. But I, it was so. I was like, I'll be making brownies later, eating that. And then it wasn't funny, but there was something funny about thinking it was. Oh yeah. Posing it as like this is going to kill. (laughs) And it may have been my meds were messed up that day or something, but I like I for a day. Was crying laughing about it. Did Sarah laugh at all? She laughed at how hysterical I got. Oh yeah. She laughed at like that's you, the stand-up you, comic I remember, Mary. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. She was she was also worried about me. I think a little bit because like it was like a manic. Like yeah, it was yeah, manic. yeah, yeah. It was manic, and I have those. I have those jokes or, or, you know, those things that hit me like that. Oh, that, it, every, every night of my life on the internet, there's some really <laughs> dumb thing that just yeah yeah, yeah destroys. It, oh yeah. Yeah, that's great. Last one. Give me one recommendation. Mm. Oh, wow. A recommendation? Yeah, one, a current recommendation. Like something that's out right now that you should read or watch or something like yeah. that. Yeah, don't, guilty pleasure, whatever. Netflix doesn't, you know. Yeah, let me think about that for a second. Maybe you should play some like elevator music. Um, oh. What's something that's like hit me? Read uh, a book by David Graham called Killers of the Flower Moon. Um, this is going to 
this is like this is not the the opposite of the brownie story. <laughs> you don't uh, have to make up a name of a book. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, read. Yeah, no, I, I can't remember anything else. Um, Making Brownies by Andy Smith. No, uh, <laughs> David Grand, this wonderful nonfiction writer, wrote this book about the Osage Indian tribe, Native American tribe, um, in the early 1900s. They were moved off their land to land that was seen as unusable. There was a lot, lots of oil underneath. They became millionaires, but they had to have white guardians to control their money. They started mysteriously dying. Guess, guess who's the benefactors of that, of those inheritances? Shocked. Uh, and is these this is also one of the first big murder cases. It's like the birth of the FBI is intertwined with this thing. Yeah. Um, and it's just this beautiful, incredibly heartbreaking book. Um, that just unfolds in such a great way. And it's just so, it's so, so important. Uh, I think for people to, like, that's the thing right now. I think people need to read. Um, and it's, it's for multiple reasons. I think one is that, um, cruelty isn't new. Um, and all of the ignorance that we, you might perceive is happening right now. There's a lineage to it. Yeah. And, um, in some ways, um, we are complicit in, in being part of a system some of us that uh, contributes to these kind of things. And it kind of really contextualizes what's happening right now. And what I perceive is happening right now. Yeah. Uh, and what's happened, what it happened in the early 1900s and kind of connecting those things. And um, um, yeah, so I think people should read that. All right. And then just uh, to end on a light note specifically for <laughs> you, um, are we part of the uh, eighth mass extinction or are we going to make it? I think it's the sixth. Sixth. Yes, we are. Uh, we might make it, but it's still a mass extinction. Um, are humans going to be wrapped into that? Maybe. I don't know if we're... I don't know if democracy is going to make it out of what's happening right now. The American democracy is going to make it like intact. So let's we'll start there. But uh, humanity itself, I think... It's not that we're not far behind because we're not, the United States is not the end, end all. Be, this is not light. You said it on a light note. Uh, maybe. We might be. Um, I think I think there are things we can do to pacify what's happening to the, the terrible things that we're doing to the earth right now. But I think um, it's just as likely that the earth or we will kill ourselves. So, yeah. That Boy, that's real neat. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, yeah. Steve. That was cool. The environment <laughs> dominates most of Andy and I's conversations. Yes, this so. is where all of our conversations go. Uh, well, I want uh, for posterity, if either if, if any of our kids hear this, I want them to hear uh, this is not about extinction. This is actually genuine. Uh, that we are all friends and mm -hmm. our friendship has now been recorded for 90 minutes or however long it has been so i want to listen to this every night before i go to sleep <laughs> genuinely love you very much you mean a lot to me and I look up to you a lot and uh appreciate what you do love you too <laughs>